Welcome to Last Meals. As you know, me, your homegirl, on Fridays I sit down, I eat somebody's last meal, and I tell you a story about the bad deed that they have done. Wow, that was the smoothest intro. Why can you not just keep it like that every single time? This week, this case is kind of ripped from the headlines. At the moment I'm recording this, this woman has been executed literally like four days ago. Meaning it isn't really known what she has eaten for her last meal. But I also think there's a different reason for her not having special meal, and that is because if you're familiar with this story, you know that the Senate has overturned this decision and has basically denied her appeal very last minute, so I think that's more to do with Lisa Montgomery not having her last meal than anything else. When talking about last meals, here we're talking about that special meal that they can choose and that they have the budget for. You can go and listen to like the whole playlist afterwards. I've done probably 20 by now, I'm not counting, but plenty. Speaking of the playlist, this case is probably the toughest and the most grim one that I have covered on this channel, probably on the podcast as well, although there, I wouldn't debate it that much there. So I just wanted to give a disclaimer, I'll put a link below to another video if you can't handle reports of like sexual abuse, graphic violence, fetal abduction, all of that stuff. I'll still try to include at least one, but I think I have two timestamps where I will acknowledge when the most graphic descriptions of violence are coming up and I will give you a timestamp that you can skip that part but still hear the case out because I think this case is super important to be heard. It is controversial, so again, be nice in the comments and just give your opinion in the nicest possible way. Just again, thinking about the victim. Because even if you agree with the decision, even if you agree with the death penalty and agree as to what has happened in this case, just again think about the victim and the victim's family in this case. So, let's dive in. Lisa was born on February 27, 1968, and as with many childhoods of anybody committing murder, this one was one of the more unstable ones that I have covered. Like, her mom would be bringing in boyfriends constantly, and she had kind of like a solid family unit at certain point, people have done interviews with her half-sister Diane. So Diane was the one that started getting abuse sooner because she was a bit older than Lisa, but once the girl's dad left the home, Diane luckily for herself ended up going to foster care and then being rehomed and growing up surviving trauma and not turning into something that maybe she would have also turned out to be had she continued living there. Lisa, however, stayed at the home and both of the girls, well, Diane said that the first memory that she had was when Lisa would be so scared so she would come to like sleep with Diane to sleep in her bed because the mom would constantly be bringing different men around once the dad has left and wouldn't just be bringing men just for her own sake, but she would give any jobs of babysitting to the male babysitter. So on this occasion, Diane was eight and Lisa was only three years old when she lied in the bed next to her sister for warmth when this male babysitter came into the room and raped her half-sister. So her mother, Judy, remarries once Diane leaves the house and he remarries to this guy, Jack. And this is when the true nightmares begin. Because when Lisa was only 11, Jack started raping her. And he's obviously started raping Lisa on the sly, like hiding it from the mother. And personally, I think this was a manipulative trait because of what used to come, but this became regular occurrence and it would happen at least once or twice a week. 
And at this point, this family is really isolated. They are living in a trailer in the woods of Oklahoma, like literally in the middle of nowhere. And not just that, but Jack made sure that this particular part of his life is also to be isolated. So he built a room in the opposite side of the trailer, it's like a private room, where he could go and rape Lisa without anybody else in the house knowing and without anybody hearing her screams. And this is where I'm gonna put a timestamp on the screen because they're coming to some of the worst or the sexual abuse. So again, if you don't wanna listen to that, just skip to this time on the screen. Jack would often rape her and sodomize her and he would shove the pillow against her face in order to keep her screams down. And there was this occasion when she tried to resist and he slammed her head so hard against this concrete floor that she has had a brain injury. And this was not just like speculation. The later MRI scans have shown this. But obviously, they didn't care at the time. Even if she would black out, he would just continue. And one day, after all of this time, Judy, the mother, enters the room when her daughter is being sexually assaulted by her husband at the time, and she gets incensed, but not because her child is being raped in the room. No, she fetches the gun, puts it to Lisa's head, and tells her, how could you do this to me? So my initial thing before I read this particular part was why didn't Lisa go to her mother? Like, usually, if there is any sexual abuse, you would go to the other parent and be like, hey, this is happening. And in normal households, the parent will believe you. Obviously, here, I think Lisa knew what the case would be just from her mother's behavior. Not just that, but what happens next definitely proves that that would be the case because now the mom is aware of this. She obviously keeps dating the guy, but now they start bringing in other people in on it. Basically, she's getting gang raped. So the stepfather would bring the friends, they would gang rape her, and usually this would last for hours, and then these friends would urinate on Lisa as if she was trash, just showing her that she doesn't matter in this family. And then her mother, on top of all of that, would also use her to pay the bills, as she would say. And she was basically offer Lisa to anybody coming for any, like, job in the house, like, somebody needs to do the plumbing or, like, electrician. She would be like, well, actually, I don't have the money, but here's my 11-year-old daughter. And she just made Lisa feel even more worthless, if possible. Now, you're probably wondering, what about social services? Like, there is a lot happening in this family where somebody's being put in foster care. She's continuing to go to school. Like, did she have any doctor examinations, everything? Yes. Every single person in her childhood honestly failed Lisa from the social worker who did come, but obviously they announced themselves, which defies the whole point of freaking social worker and welfare checks, because they just announced themselves weeks ahead, so this family probably sat Lisa down and told her not to spill the beans, not to say anything, because otherwise she's gonna get it much worse. The doctor that examined her warned, actually, the mother of, like, the sexual assault. They were like, hey, listen, we don't know where it happened, but, like, it kind of looks like it has happened somewhere. She says she's gonna take care of it. Of course, she didn't. And because her mother, Judy, got divorced, the judge who presided over this case was also then made aware of the sexual assaults going on in the family. And again, he did nothing. He didn't care to put her in foster care. Just every single person in her childhood failed her one after the other. And just like in many other cases where a child is brought up witnessing abuse, that's the only life they know. So when they go on to marry, 
they usually do marry into that because that's how they've been shown love. So that's the only way that they know. And they think they normalize it because if you remember with Lisa, it was happening since she was three years old. So this is the only thing she knew. So at the age of 18, she gets married to her stepbrother. And in five years, they happen to have four children, which, you know, again, in a normal kind of relationship, was like, oh my God, like, so exciting. Like, they wanted to have kids so badly. They're having it so young. It's all happening for them. Of course, of course not here. I think Lisa, honestly, from, like, after taking this whole case into consideration, really wanted to have children, and she probably thought that she could provide them with a better family environment than her parents did, and probably wanted that for them. Again, I can only speak from, like, the feelings that I have had from this case. But her husband was violent to her. And his brother actually found, like, some home videos, so... You can guess what these were about. Well, those videos show Lisa's husband beating her while raping her. And soon after she had these kids, and obviously because of everything traumatic that has been happening in her life, friends and family started noticing that Lisa kind of tends to sleep into the world of her own and stays there. As we know, like, again, when we retreat to, like, a fictional world, it is usually because it's safe for us, because nobody can hurt us there, nobody can disappoint us there. But obviously this is problematic when you have four small children, and it is a sign of trauma, it is a sign of that something you need therapy, you need like to get yourself sorted. However, her children were kind of mocking her for it as well, in a sense like they weren't really happy about this, because she would go into behaving childishly, so she would kind of behave as a child towards them, and obviously that's, like, one thing that kids would find super embarrassing if their mom was just to, like, bring them to school and then just behave like she was one of them. And people have said that this was due to trauma and her multiple mental illnesses, bipolar disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, disassociative disorder, and traumatic brain injury. This is when Lisa gets divorced and she gets remarried to this guy named Kevin. We don't know much about that marriage, mostly because the crime case kind of happened soon after. So, she marries Kevin and this is when she also undergoes sterilization. Technically, tying your tubes so that she can't have children any longer. But she is still trying to get pregnant. And she is trying to convince Kevin and everybody else that she actually miraculously did get pregnant again. So for a brief second, before we dive into the gruesome case of Bobby Jostinette in the hands of Lisa Montgomery, let's talk about fetal abductions for a second. The motive is technically really simple. It's really one of the two things. One is, like, fulfilling your ideal childbirth. And this is where my own opinion of Lisa wanted to have children and to provide them in a better environment, to prove that she can be a better mother, etc., comes from. So even if she ties her tubes, you just can't imagine not having any more children and not fulfilling that part. And then, partially, another motive of, like, why people would abduct fetuses... Feti? Is it fetuses or feta? Should have checked that one. And that is to fulfill the relationship, so to keep the partner there, to keep the relationship going. Obviously, this is a new husband, so she probably saw it as, well, he wants to have kids with her that are of his own. And usually, the extent that these women go to is extreme, like faking pregnancy, wearing those, like, prosthetic bellies, making sure that everybody knows, posting pictures of, like, faking ultrasound, 
everything and then it goes obviously a step further because now they know that they need the actual physical baby and this is where the pre-planning takes place. This is what Lisa has done next. She started having the online chat with Bobby Jostinet, who lived miles away from her Kansas home in Skidmore. So Bobby Joe and her husband had this dog breeding business, and they were breeding dogs and obviously like selling them, trying to home them. So this is what Lisa and Bobby bonded over in this Retter Chatter, that was the name of the forum, and they bonded over the fact that both women were pregnant. You probably see where this is going. And Lisa told Bobby that it would be great addition for her family if she was to also adopt a puppy. So, like, once the baby comes along, there's a puppy, and you know, everybody can play around, all happy family. So, they arranged to meet. Obviously, Lisa went under the alias name, and Bobby gave her her own address to go and adopt a puppy from her, and then bring the puppy back home to Kansas. So in December 2004, Lisa, who was 36 at the time, drove 281.5 kilometers or 175 miles from her home in Kansas to Skidmore. And when she knocked at the door, obviously Bobby was surprised. It wasn't the face that Bobby has seen when spending time chatting with Lisa, who went under the name Darlene Fisher, but Lisa manages to convince her that she is that person enough to overpower her take out a piece of rope and strangle Bobby Jostinette. Once she's dead, Lisa proceeds to find a knife and take the body out of the mother's tummy and then abduct the fetus. Luckily, because I need to take this for my own peace of mind, the baby is alive and well. Somehow, miraculously, Lisa knew what she was doing. The baby survived. She's like 16 or maybe 17 now because it's 2021 living with, like, her dad, the baby's fine. I mean, she can't remember anything about this event. It's probably what she lives with is people telling her stories about her mom and about this. But yeah, the baby is alive and well. And that part just goes again to tell you that some serious pre-planning did go into this, because I don't believe that Lisa just knew how to cut out babies out of people's thumbs and just do a cesarean rough cesarean with a knife. I don't think that she just had that in her head, because I know that I wouldn't. So there were definitely several parts here that did take severe plea planning, and there were textbook fetal abduction. And as much as I want to, yes, feel pity for Lisa because of her background and everything, yes, there is a part that definitely required premeditation that was pre-planned that was calculated to a certain degree. So just want to go on here and say that, yes, I definitely think she should have been in prison for life, most certainly, and then possibly getting some sort of rehab, some sort of help there. I still don't think that the story should have ended the way it did. So where did it go from here? Bobby's mom walks into a gruesome scene. She, when she made the 911 call, she said, like, it looks like my daughter's stomach has exploded. So when paramedics arrived, they obviously tried to do CPR, tried to revive her, but they couldn't, and Bobby Joe was pronounced dead on the scene. Meanwhile, later that day, Lisa Montgomery calls her husband. She has made it back to Kansas. She rings her to pick her up from, like, a parking spot close to a hospital. And she said, like, I just happened to give birth to a baby a couple of hours earlier, and they released me from the hospital. I couldn't find. Did the husband believe it? Was he buying this? But he hasn't reported it. 
luckily for everybody, the story ended in a way where the baby was found safe and Lisa was arrested the very next day because the police wasted no time because they knew that the baby was abducted and it was a matter of literally hours to see if this baby will survive. So they immediately went to analyzing technology and have spotted the IP addresses and then have alerted the Kansas police who then went to Lisa's home and has arrested her there. Lisa's friends and family later actually speculated that there might have been another motive that kind of fits into the ones I spoke with when it comes to fetal abductions uh, before, and that's the one of trying to protect the relationship and like keep the partner, because they said that Kevin obviously got onto the fact that she is faking the pregnancy because he knew that she has tied her tubes, so he was threatening to expose her to like everybody else and basically divorce her and then get the custody of the children because she clearly is if she's faking this you know what else could she do and she's clearly not like mentally all there so the only way she saw the resolution to this is to produce a baby make a baby appear so in 2007 the trial begins and lisa yet again has just been failed by the system because she gets presented by this public defense lawyer who never tried a capital case at that point. His name was Fred Duchart and he was the Kansas City attorney with a particular fame. It's the kind of fame you don't want. It's the kind of lawyer you definitely don't want to represent you. This guy has had more of his clients sentenced to death in federal court than any other defense lawyer in the U.S. So four out of seven federal death rows inmates from Missouri had had him as a lawyer. And the lawyer warns her that she has committed a federal offense of kidnapping resulting in death, and if she is found guilty, the jury will decide on the death penalty. Now, of course, we established this guy has no clue what he is doing. First of all, they didn't reveal a tiny bit, maybe, of her sexual abuse as a child. Nothing enough to relate to jury, like the psychology that I'm trying to relate during this video, of why, maybe, she would be doing any of this. They went for the defense of pseudosciasis, I think that's how it's pronounced. That is when somebody falsely believes they're pregnant and then they're doing everything outward to appear pregnant. Where again, I think a great decision would be maybe to have a female defense attorney in her case and not just fail her here, because this guy's whole argument was that Lisa believed that Bobby Joe's baby is her baby, so she believed like legally she had a right to her, that's why she went and attacked Bobby Jocinet and took the baby and then tried to claim it was hers. And they did mention that she had PTSD, she had depression, she had borderline personality disorder, but then they messed it all up completely in court because he decided to switch from pseudosciences thing and say that Lisa's brother actually committed this, but Lisa's brother at the time had a rock-solid alibi, which then caused that whole family to turn against Lisa and to turn and, like, not want to help her at all, whatsoever, which meant that that's why any further abuse that they could have testified to just hasn't been heard in the court. The jury just hasn't heard much about this abuse. So then, yeah, you can invent a disease, but then they don't have the background on that. You know, why did she have any damage to the brain? Well, because she has been raped since the age of three and slammed against the concrete floor. None of that has been heard by the jury, so of course the decision is going to be brutal towards this woman. The jury deliberated for only five hours, after which they recommended a sentence of death. 
And it was only years later when the defense lawyers, completely different team, looked into this. It was like, well, there is more to this that people don't have any knowledge of and that might work in her favor. So let's look into this and let's appeal. And it's the first time that they actually have like clinical social workers, people who have been trained and studied this, actually sit down and interview Lisa for the first time in her life. And she has been abused for how long? This clinical social worker, Fogelsang, told The Guardian that Lisa's situation reminded her of the Korean War veterans. So it was that level of PTSD. It reminded her of the point of war where war soldiers would be just kept in isolation in these deprived conditions. So after she actually finished speaking with Lisa, she produced 184-page document, just documenting Lisa's case of abuse. This is your call for the second timestamp that you can skip through to this number on the screen if you don't want to hear the absolute worst of the worst that only came out to the public at this point. Lisa's mother would duct tape her mouth to prevent her from talking. She would be stripped naked and made to stand on the porch in front of the drunken visitors. And then they would tell her she would be sent to a home if she made even the slightest noise. Her parents made her beat her younger sister with a board until the younger sister would bleed. And then remember the room. So the room had this detail which reminded me of a Bates Motel. It just gave me such a Bates Motel vibe. It's a great series if you want to watch it, but it's just dark. Her stepfather cut a hole in the closet and watched her in this room when she would be back from school. So she was just observed at all points. And the stepfather would creepily even sit in the closet and would just surveil her at all times. So Lisa found this tiny part of the room where she could stand where he could not see her because at certain points she obviously realized that there is somebody creeping, there's a hole in her room and somebody's watching her, she can't do anything else. So she looks for something that's not in that viewpoint and that's where she hides. And she would curl up in this corner for hours just to stay out of his field of vision. So when all of this came to light, as per New York Times, she was now diagnosed with bipolar disorder, temporal lobe epilepsy, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, disassociative disorder, psychosis, traumatic brain injury, and most likely fetal alcohol syndrome. And even in prison, so during her prison life, she would be telling her cellmates that she's pregnant. She would still be pulling that line, even though because of how public this case was at the time, people knew. Her cellmates kind of knew that, yeah, she had her tubes tied as well. Now, there are clinical psychologists out there that agree that even though, yes, she could have had all of these mental illnesses, she could have been psychotic and still very much calculated and very much knew what she was doing. Dr. Catherine Porterfield said, like, we would see incredible violence coming because of this psychotic belief or just, or just thought process. And that brings me to initially what I was thinking, like, and what I think with every single case that I cover, whether it is on this channel or on the podcast, and that is, at what points was there maybe no point of no return? Or at how many points could have somebody stopped themselves? And she, yes, did have plenty. She didn't have to create that online chat, didn't have to go under a false name, didn't have to actually befriend, lie that she was pregnant, go through all of this process. She didn't have to befriend Bobby Jostinette, lie that she was pregnant, arrange this meetup. She didn't have to travel this many hours to go visit Bobby Jostinette, then didn't have to bring the rope to actually kill her, didn't have to take the child, 
didn't have to then lie that this was her child. So at least 10 just on top of my head. But then when thinking about this myself, I think this is the definite proof that partially what she was doing was influenced by her mental state and by the fact that she couldn't make rational decisions. And that is that exact fact that she didn't stop herself. She was completely living in her own world where she was pregnant, she had to provide that child, and that was her fixation. Like, she would not have stopped. Personally, in particular, it's that ride. Because you have to ride for miles and miles, and all you're left with is literally your thoughts of, like, what you're going to do, and you still proceed and do it. For me, that part means that there is definitely some background here, and, like, that her mental health was actually influencing it. Yes, again, there's gonna be plenty of people with everything that she had in terms of, like, mental health disorders that won't do a similar thing, but this is my personal opinion as to why I think, like, her mental health was detrimental to what she has proceeded to do. There is only a bit more to this case, so do let me know what you think about it. Did she deserve a death penalty? What really convinced you? If so, again, respectfully, because of the second part of this story and why I think it needs to be told is because all of the focus goes on Lisa. I couldn't find much of a background on Bobby Joe, and all of the interviews that they have done with her family are obviously, again, surrounding this trial. What do you think should be the decision? What do you think about this case? Instead of us trying to actually present the victim and, like, who she was as a person, who she was to the friends and family, because obviously, yes, all of her friends and family are going to be pissed and are going to be like, no, like, she took a life. In a lot of the articles, I have seen the friends and family obviously criticizing Lisa for taking the mother away from the child. Why did she have to do this? And this meaning that she is deserving of a death penalty. You'll have to let me know, but I just thought that this story was super sad on both parts because Lisa has been failed and failed and failed by the system and then by the president, as we'll learn soon. But then on the other side of the story, we have a victim who has been failed because her story is not fully available to the public, but all of the focus is on this one-sided controversy of this story. So on January 1st this year, so 2021, the free charge panel denied Lisa's appeals and reinstated her execution date, which was supposed to be January the 12th. However, on that same date, federal judge Patrick Handlen granted a stay of her execution on the grounds that they managed to prove her mental competence. And if they managed to prove that she did not understand the grounds for her execution, as per the Eighth Amendment, then they would have granted a stay and her execution date would have been postponed again. However, on January the 12th, the Supreme Court vacated the stay and they ordered that the execution was to be carried out immediately. And this is partially controversial because the previous 10 inmates meeting the death penalty have faced the same conditions where the stay of their execution was vacated and they were to be executed immediately. And this brings me to why I'm not eating anything today and that's again because she was brought to be executed, she was brought to the chamber early on January the 13th. And when I mean early, I mean like right after midnight. So I don't think she had the time to order the special meal and I don't think that anybody considered it. 
I don't think anybody considered like, oh yeah, let's please this one girl that does last meals on YouTube and give her an extra food meal to cover. No, they did not care. They just wanted it done and over before another administration takes place because, as we know, Biden has sworn to end death penalty. So, early January the 13th, they bring her into this Terre Haute execution center in Indiana and she receives only one drug. I think we spoke in certain places, they do like a mix of three drugs. So it was like a little injection, only one drug was introduced. Then a guard like took her mask off because again, it's quarantine. It's risking how many people's lives, but the show must go on. So they take her mask and they ask her, does she have any last words? She says no. And then they inject her and she was pronounced dead at 1.31 a.m. January the 13th. This makes Lisa the first person in 67 years to be executed by the government. What I mean by that is that the jury didn't make the final decision. So it was made by one man who just wanted to execute as many people as possible before he leaves his post as a president. And that's, that's the sad part truly in this story that this could have all been prevented if just any of those people in her childhood, and I think I have mentioned at least three or four, from like the doctor, social worker, her own parents maybe, the judge at the divorce proceedings, had any of those people actually done something, gotten this girl into some therapy, gotten her to have some MRI scans, check the actual damage that was done then to her, place her into foster care, anywhere else really, she could have maybe had the same luck as her half-sister, where, yes, she has lived through a traumatic experience, but then it just didn't go on to be even more and more traumatic, but instead it had moved on in a completely different direction. So let me know in the comments, do you agree with me on the fact that everybody failed this, and that's ultimately why this is an uber-sad case? Because I'd like to think that there was a point, whether it is in prison, anywhere where she felt safe, even if it was, like, in that corner, of the room when she was hiding from her own stepfather in a trailer that was observing her through a freaking hole. I would like to think that she was happy at certain point in her life, but that's why this case bums me out so much on so many levels, because I don't know if she was. I don't know if she just lived a life of terror and trauma and then tried to replace it over and over again by getting pregnant or thinking that she was pregnant, or getting other people to believe that she was pregnant. And ultimately, the one last person that failed Lisa was the person in power. And that's why this case was important to be told to anybody who would listen, because people in power should be leading by example. And this is the example that they're led by in this case. Super positive note to end this video on. I know. I know. So spread the word on this case in maybe a more succinct and, like, less depressing way. And until next time we cyber-see each other, keep enjoying the really small things in life, and also enjoy your next meal as if it was your last. Good. Bye! <laughs> Goodbye.